Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. I'm Francis. And I'm Anya. And today we're discussing the second episode of the second season of His Dark Materials, The Cave. This episode was written by Francesca Gardner, who has written for other book-to-TV adaptations like The Man in the High Castle and The Rook. Um, She's also a producer on Killing Eve, which is also a book-to-TV translation. Uh, Simone Kirby joins the cast as Dr. Mary Malone this episode, and she's been a TV actress for 15 years in shows like uh, Peaky Blinders and uh, Resistance which is more of a miniseries. But. Uh, so this week, Will and Lyra cross from Chitagata into Will's... I almost said Will's Lyra, Jesus. Mm. Into Will's Oxford so that Will can check on his mom and Lyra can look for a scholar who knows about dust. I'm so proud of how short that summary was. I was channeling you, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it, Anya. All right, how did everybody feel about this week's episode? A... I'm apparently going first. I'm so glad we finally get an episode that is not written by What's-His-Face. Names <laughs> never stay in my head. I apologize. Jack Thorne? Yes, thank you. I'm really excited about that. And just in general, I'm still really liking uh, season two. They're still making good adaptation choices. But I am wary because we felt the same up to episode two in season one. And then things started kind of petering off after season or episode two so mm. i'm still feeling good but i am worried uh well i mostly agree i thought this was another good episode with good adaptive choices but i am more of an optimist so i think this season is just gonna continue being awesome what she's saying is Anya's set up to be disappointed and i am set up to be pleasantly surprised <laughs> <laughs> uh i really liked this episode i feel like it gave me what I wanted for like Will's story, like the whole thing of like getting to know him better, getting to understand what's important to him. And we got to see some things from Will where, you know, he was like, we we can't be noticed by the police. Like he says that out loud and um, he tricks his grandmother by spilling the tea and stuff like that. Just showing like how smart he is, what he really cares about. Yes. Yeah. And and that we get to see like his agenda, like by knowing what he cares about, we can see that it doesn't line up with Lyra's and that that is like creating some tension in the plot, which is great. I, he feels so much more like Will than he did last season. Yeah. Yeah. Generally, I feel this is proving to be a, 
really excellent adaptation. Lyra feels a tiny little bit less naive when she's walking around Wills Oxford than in the books. And I actually quite like that. It makes her seem a little bit more streetwise when mm. in the books she feels a little bit like um, she doesn't really know what's going on in anywhere. It's a good adaptation choice because you still know that Lyra wants what Lyra wants, but you don't get that like she was so petty in the book about not wanting to do <laughs> about wanting to help Will, which was great in the book, but it would be shitty on screen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. She she's not quite so inherently dislikable as she is in the book sometimes. But we still do get like a moment of it with the whole her trying to wear a giant sombrero and being like, what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so favorite parts. I'll go first um, because I think my favorite moment is the one that Alan already mentioned where Will kicks over the teacup because he needs a way to distract his grandmother and the way to to get a posh bitch's attention is to <laughs> spill some dark colored liquid on a white carpet. <laughs> I love that that manipulation works perfectly exactly the way um, he needs it to. But yeah, more generally, there's just so much to love in this episode. It was really hard to pick a favorite part. I thought all the stuff with Lyra and Mary was amazing, which is important because that's, I think, kind of like the heart and soul of this episode. And then we also get some really good Coulter manipulation, um, first with Boreal and then with McPhail at the end. And like both of those um, interactions are just like so, so good, mm. where you can mm. see see her just like wrapping people around her finger and like pissing them off on purpose i owe you my thanks you have nothing to thank me for don't you see this is a curse a web of my design in which you are both the spider and the fly i have had to bite my lip while all of you parade around concocting your fearful little schemes Daring to judge me. And all the while, there's a myriad of universes out there that you could only hope to fathom. Careful. You forget yourself. I forget myself. <laughs> no, Cardinal. I have a very, very good memory. And since you need the past to remain buried, you'll turn the other cheek while I take what I want. Where are you going? I'm leaving. Where? Are you going to find Asriel? <laughs> no. I'm in search of something infinitely more valuable. Good luck, Hugh. I love her. I know it's a surprise, but <laughs> she's so good. That costume is fantastic. The Don't funeral it. outfit? Yeah. The funeral outfit was so good. Yeah. Uh, my favorite part was still Pan and the demons in general that they're doing. Mm. I, I'm still just so impressed about how much better they are. Mm-hmm. And again, I want to make clear it's not that we see them more, although I do think we are seeing more. Like... Almost everyone that has like a speaking role, you notice they're demons. But again, I think we're just seeing them 
inappropriate bits, if that makes sense. Like there's a bit where Mrs. Coulter is walking down the hallway and we don't see any demons. And that's fine because we know the golden monkey is there and we don't care about those assholes walking away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when like um, they're bringing Lancelius in, you see his demon, you see the demons of the two guards bringing him in and they look threatening and they're just using them very well. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And when McPhail speaks with his demon so that it's clear that it's not just Pan who speaks. <laughs> right. Because yeah. the golden monkey doesn't speak. Which is, like, it It didn't in the book either, so. That's a good point, that it is establishing for people who haven't read the book that, yes, all of these demons can speak. Yeah, and, like, the only ones I remember speaking, well, I guess there's Hester. Hester, and, yeah. I was going to say Hester and Pan, but also the Knock Goose. The <laughs> Knock Goose. Anyway, and uh, my actual favorite part I'm going to talk about in the spoiler sections about why it's my favorite, so. <laughs> And also, Pan had such good personality this episode. Yeah. Like, yeah. in the bag, out of the bag. Like, he was so good this episode. And oh God, I don't remember the exact bit, but there's definitely a bit where he just, like, gives Lyra this look. And I was like, that is so Pan. I love it. <laughs> He's so much better characterized. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite part was uh, actually Mary. Um, I felt that she was a very good representation of an academic like generally she felt eccentric but also willing to talk to anybody about everything that she does if they show an interest and that just sounds that's just like any academic i've ever met (laughs) yeah also that when lyra walks in she's like obsessing over some birds because you know like her actual research is probably like frustrating and depressing her so she's just like (laughs) (laughs) trying to distract herself by doing something else nerdy she's like always either eating a snack or drinking alcohol like it it just rings very true yeah she felt she didn't feel like she wasn't an academic and in the end considering how often academics are badly represented in media just represented as the boffins you know they're they're socially awkward and uh, terrible at talking to the opposite sex, and you're like, but that's nothing like the academics I actually know. They're all basically like normal people, but really kind of a bit eccentric. They're not like impossible to talk to. <laughs> Some of them are, but most of them aren't. Yeah. Also, um, thank you, Francis, for sending me hobnobs because I was like, oh, I recognize <laughs> that biscuit. If in doubt, hob knob. There's a really good moment with her where Lyra asks her, like, I, what do you know about dust? And she, like, cocks her head a little bit. I really love this from the actress. And she, like, looks off into the middle distance for just half a second. And then her eyes just look back at Lyra and she's like, Please tell me about dust. Dust? What do you mean? Well, we call it dust in my world. Like, what? Like, yeah. like she's ready to talk about anything, but she's like... <laughs> It's just perfect. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my favorite thing was, well, we complained at the end of the subtle knife that, or I mainly complained that like, what's up with Mrs. Coulter for this whole story? She just comes in at the end. We're like, I want to see that. How did that happen? And we seem to be getting that side of the story in the adaptation, which I love. Yeah, definitely. Agreed. Oh, so this, this is uh I'm going to say this vaguely, so it doesn't need to be in the spoiler section, but I like that we're getting to see the journey Mrs. Coulter takes from who she was in book one to who she is in book three, 
because without having her in book two especially the beginning of book three was like what the fuck (laughs) uh least favorite parts mine is still the witches which really sucks because i love them but i still feel like they're trying real hard but they're not they're not doing anything i they're just arguing yes yeah i agree with you Although I did think that the witches were much better in this episode than in the previous episode. Like, I think the conflict was a bit clearer this time, and it works better as, like, a shouty match of dialogue that mm-hmm. has, like, a speech to the group. Yeah. The head of the Magisterium, Ruta. He was a bloated monster who spread hate and fear and blindness. I had to send Dr. Lancelius as a peace envoy to clean up this mess. We can't get drawn into this cycle of futile revenge. We must focus on the girl and the prophecy. You speak as if you are above this. And you act as if you have no self-control. I protected the prophecy. Thanks to me, our enemies still don't know the child's name. We need to unite the Nine Clans. We've cut the head off the Magisterium. So let's finish what they started. But... In an episode that was, like, overall very, very strong, it was still the weakest part. Mm. Yeah. And, I like, I get that it's stupid of me to hate them for trying to fix what I hated most about the book. But I just, <laughs> I don't like Ruta being on the correct side. It's wrong. <laughs> All she you wants- liked hating her. Yes. Do you feel like it's the correct side to be at war with the Magisterium right now? When because Seraphine is like big picture and she's like a vendetta bitch, you know, like. Well, what it sounds like is Ruta saying we have to stop them from hurting us, while Seraphina is saying, "But there's a prophecy we have to worry about," which is bullshit. If somebody's hurting you and your friends right then and there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good. So that's why I think she's on the quote unquote correct side. Okay. I like that. But the prophecy, man. <laughs> but you like Serafina would be worried about her fellow witches getting killed, you know? Like mm-hmm. that's some bullshit. Yeah. And also I I don't think witches would ever try to send a a delegate to the magist like they don't give a shit about the magisterium. That did ring a bit weird to me because Lancelius is a very valuable contact for them and they do use him a lot for their dealings with the real world and so to just send him in knowing basically he would at least be imprisoned and you know quite possibly executed it just felt it didn't feel like something that a savvy group of age-old creatures would do uh, I do not like that Boreal is like world hopping with no explanation of the portal now going to Sitagatse instead of between Lyra and Will's world. What is what is happening? How is he doing that? Magic. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I feel like it's a plot hole. I feel like it, <laughs> I feel like the writers are like, yeah, he just does that, right? So it doesn't feel like a mystery. It feels like an oversight, especially because he's like camping out at the portal. Like, why is he doing that? If he's there, that tells me that he's like been in the portal. And I want to see when he walks through the portal and then a specter is like, what up, 
boreal it was like whoa you know like i want to see that and it feels like i don't know it just feels like all of it is uh being ignored i will say we don't know that he was camping out he might have just sat down in the car it feels suspicious though doesn't it it does yes uh least favorite part i didn't really find much that was particularly troubling to me the witches like yeah but no more than usual um the only thing which slightly irked me was a continuity error where um lyra doesn't actually say make the cave use words and then she refers to that her saying that later and she does say that in the book and you kind of go, well, but she never actually told Mary to make it use words. So it's obviously they put it in and then they cut it out and they just forgot that, in fact, they had put it in. But it just it just irked me a bit. But also, if that's the worst thing about the episode, then I think they've done pretty well. Any problematics? Okay, um, so for problematics, I just wanted to mention quickly that while we were reading the book... I talked a lot about really wanting them to cast Mary Malone as Chinese or half Chinese. I'm upset that she's not. I Like, I really do like this actress and I like how she played her. And I love that they cast somebody who looks middle age. Because that is very rare. And, but still, like, attractive and wonderful. And she's doing a really good job. And I have nothing bad to say about her. But I do hate that it's just another white lady. Yeah, I pretty much um exactly on that page like i thought she did an amazing job i i love the actress and the way she's playing the role but it could have been better you know asian actors don't get the same opportunities and also it kind of goes against um her relationship with the iching i was wondering when it said like the alethiometer told her to look for the mountain on the door. I don't remember that from the book, not that it, it needed to be there. Um, but then the mountain that we see is like in Japan. And to me that like conflates the, you know, the Iching with, you know, like Japanese culture and like, it's, you know, it's all that Eastern gobbledygook. All Asians are the same. Yeah, and I was like, that's not good. What is it doing? Why are we doing that? No. I wasn't paying that much attention, but it did indeed look like Mount Fuji. Yeah. Yeah, it really did. Maybe we'll get an explanation. I don't know. I also feel like the I Ching was less important to her in this, that it was just yeah. like, which is fine. You know, that's a choice. Perhaps the right choice if your actress is a white Irish woman. Right. Yeah, exactly. But, it, you know, it was still in there for book people to, and to point out, you know, like it drew more particles when they put it in there or whatever. So maybe it's less fundamental to our identity. I feel like His Dark Materials, the show, is doing a good job of, you know, putting in a lot of black actors and, um, you know, last season disabled actors and I just want to see more. Like, there's more than just black and white people in the world. Mm-hmm. And, like, a lot more, obviously. And I don't see why they're not mixing it up. Especially in England. There's a lot of people who are not white and or black. You know? like mm-hmm. <sighs> Yes. It just like everywhere. Me. Yeah. The actress is great, though. Nothing against her. She did a really good job. And I'm excited to see what she does. I just wish they'd gone in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely agreed. 
yeah, so jumping off Mary Malone, I just want to say I did love how when they go into the room with the cave and Lyra's looking through the window at the machine or whatever the fuck that thing is, you could tell that she was remembering the slicing machine. Yes. Oh, that honestly didn't even occur to me, but I love that. Yeah. That's so good. And I, I A, like the implication that it had the same feel, which Mm -hmm. I think is very... I don't know if that was in the text of the book, but I think it's very true to like the feel of the book. You know what I mean? To the spirit of the book is what I was trying to say. And I love that mm-hmm. the look on her face she gave was good. And the looking out at it through the window, is it's a similar set mm-hmm. to where that was in, in, in season one. And I thought that was really good. And also it answered my question as to what the hell that thing was in the opening credits. So <laughs> that felt good. Yeah, so while we're talking about the computer or the cave thing, whatever it is, so I know we talked earlier about how Mary Malone feels um, like a super authentic portrayal of an academic person. There, if I, I might just nitpick a little bit here. How dare Um, you? Get off my podcast. This this isn't, um, and this isn't necessarily like, a problem with the TV show specifically, but maybe with the book as well. To have a machine that big and crazy and cool and expensive, um, based on like the grant dollar amounts that were being thrown around, my guess is that would not be the type of equipment that a single lab would have access to. That would be like a piece of shared equipment at a yeah, core absolutely. facility. Um of where like multiple lab groups would use it or um, they might even have a system set up where like people would come in from other universities to use it. Um, yeah. And, and especially, especially like... with no, no paper, no pu- nothing published on it. Yeah. Like, no, there's it, no way. <laughs> and also I feel like, yeah, that's kind of like a difference between biology and physics. The equipment that's required to run physics experiments is like so expensive and so big that basically no one has their own equipment. There's like a a whole thing about like the number of co-authors on papers, right? Like your average um, biology paper, you know, might have like five to 10 authors or something like your average physics paper, at least for like experimental, like dark matter style stuff, you know, it would be at a facility like that. And it might have like 50 to 100 authors. So it is, it's not like quite authentic if you know a lot about how that type of science is actually conducted. But again, that's like super nitpicky and it would break the book to try and make it more realistic. So I'm not actually mad about it. I just thought it was worth pointing out. One thing about that too is I feel that way definitely in the show where obviously they want to have a cool looking set, you know? In the book, it did feel more like it was something that they kind of cobbled together. Yeah, that's you know? true. Yes. <laughs> so I, I think that is more of a TV show problem, which again, like, not that you're, not that that changes how you feel or anything, but. And that's their prerogative, and they should do that. <laughs> <laughs> I did really enjoy on the caves interface. Uh, there, there were some things um, about it which were classic looking like science rather than being particularly accurate this is actually quite a quite a nice representation of 
sort of how you do scientific interface design it's quite bare bones it's what you need it doesn't look pretty particularly even though it does like look pretty but i do really wish that in my coding stuff i had a little box on the screen which turned from red to green when i made a scientific discovery because <laughs> <laughs> she has that and i just go like what why why what <laughs> just, 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 she didn't know what she was looking for and then it turns green when it works and you're like but you didn't you didn't know that it might have just what <laughs> but yeah the the other thing about kind of lyra and mary's interaction was if you looked closely you saw when lyra finds out that mary was a nun there's a subtle dust in the air which wasn't there before and i really like that it's just a kind of subliminal hint that in fact the dust is leading her to these conclusions also her office is way too nice like it's it's a lovely office i have never seen an academic office that nice again i think that's a tv show thing oh completely yeah the thing is i wouldn't be surprised if that was a room in the university yeah especially because oxford is quite a wealthy university with a lot of stuff in it but that looked like a meeting room to me it looked like one of the, the place where you take the people who you're trying to impress yeah. You wouldn't put, even a high-ranking academic, you wouldn't put in a room like that. They'll get one at kind of the top level next to the um, air conditioning. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, they might be allowed to put a leather chair in there if they're particularly, uh, you know, high-ranking. But aside from that... Right, right, right. Uh, so speaking of uh, academia and also adaptive choices... I did love that they condensed that, like, whole, I don't know, five-page conversation between Mary and Oliver about different funding options and whether he should go to Switzerland or not or whatever um, into basically one, sen- like, two sentences of, like, we need money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, great, we don't need to know the details. <laughs> I think it was the most extraordinary discussion I've ever had. She had this quality about her, and the things she knew. Listen, Oliver, she achieved the best results we've ever had. What we need is a tangible solution to this funding situation. She hasn't got a spare million as well, has she? She's going to come back tomorrow, and then you'll see for yourself. Have a little faith. Honestly, faith out of it, shall we? Just get a good night's sleep. Yeah, and just one more thing about Oliver. I thought it was amazing that he managed to come across as a complete tool in, like, such a short span of time with so little dialogue. Yes. Oh, God, yes. As soon as that scene started, maybe it's because we know him from the book, I don't know, but as soon as that scene started, I was like, ugh, Oliver. (laughs) Yeah, fuck this guy. Looks like I don't know. I feel like he was channeling the source material much more than uh, they actually wrote for him on the page. Yeah, I agree. He was great. Um, Another thing about the cave itself, I loved the addition of just the scrawled equations on the glass because that is something that happens. And it's when you walk into a, a lab or something and you see that they've gone over the whiteboards, there's a little bit, there's like an obvious smudge where they wrote on the wall by accident and realize they can't actually rub it off. And then it's on the windows and then someone's like wiped it out and there's a brand new packet of like uh, glass writing stuff saying, use these. Like, <laughs> that that happens a lot. And it's, it, it's fun. I liked it's, it because it looked cool. 
It's also a visual callback, kind of like Caitlin was saying, to the science cabin where Asriel has like drawn uh, an outline of the mountain and written all kinds of equations around it about how he's going to open the portal and, you know, like the power that he's going to get from sacrificing children and stuff like that. Watching this episode made me realize something that I guess like should be obvious uh, but I never put together until watching the episode. She, I really love the visual of her like putting different things inside the machine and, you know, like they put a rock in there and it's like, yeah. And then the chess piece and it's like, Whoa. And then I was like, Oh, you know, the alethiometer obviously, right. Is like a man-made object that is designed to like interact with dust the way that this cave machine is, and presumably like kind of the way that the I Ching is designed to be a divination machine. And the fact that like man-made objects attract dust more is kind of like what makes the machines work. Like as a principle of like how magic works in his dark materials, I never quite put together that link, you know, that because it's a man-made object, it actually makes it work better to be like a dust interpreting machine if that makes sense okay not to reference a joke that i made before we were recording but i disagree oh <laughs> <laughs> see i i wanted to bring this up just because i think the books are really bad about explaining what dust is and and, and therefore yeah. bad about what and about explaining what is making the alethiometer work and bad about explaining what is making the cave work. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying I don't think we get that from the book. Yeah, yeah, Or yeah. therefore the show. All the machine is, all the cave is, is like an arrangement of metal and wires. There's nothing about it that should be special necessarily, you know? But mm -hmm. the fact that a person put it together and crafted it, you know? Wouldn't it then always have the green light on or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It should. That is it, fair. I mean, that is like a quantum principle, right? That measuring in and of itself causes a disturbance in the measurement. Dust feedback. Yep. <laughs> um, I did want to ask a quick question because I really liked the montage that they used here. Like, I thought it did a good job of telling the story without dialogue in a visually interesting way. And I'm trying to remember, like, has the show done montages like that for anything else? In the first episode, you get some, you know, the kids running from room to room to show you, like, life at Jordan a little bit. Maybe some of the travel with the Egyptians? Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, it just, it stood out to me as, like, not the normal style of the show. And I thought it was well done. And remember, this is the first episode not written by Jack Thorne. So... <laughs> Maybe they are doing different things. <laughs> I started testing objects to see if the particles would respond differently. I saw more activity when the items were man-made. A chess piece, my I Ching box in particular. Finally, in a moment of madness, I attached myself. But it was only afterwards, when I was lost in thought, that it happened. What did you find? 
The shadow particles made contact. They seem to be conscious. I don't know how else to put it. You can't see them unless you expect to, unless you put your mind in a certain state. Um, do you know the poet John Keats? He has a phrase for it, negative capability. You have to hold your mind in a state of expectation without impatience. And then they flock to your thoughts like birds. That's dust. Yeah, it's visual exposition at the same time that she's doing the verbal exposition. And it's kind of like telling the same story, but in two different ways. And it makes it makes that more interesting than just mm -hmm. her sitting there talking about it. Now I want to go back and rewatch the montage and see how many outfits they have her in. Like, are they implying that this is all happening on the same day or like over different days? Maybe she's in quarantine and she just wears the same clothes every day. Oh no, that's a mood. <laughs> As somebody who is wearing, like currently right now, the same leggings and sweater that I wore yesterday. Yeah. 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 Okay, so it's time for the reason we brought Francis onto the show. <laughs> Ask a Brit! <laughs> exactly, and this time we are going to be speaking about Oxford and more interestingly some subtleties that you might miss if you don't know Oxford that well. Yeah. Um, yay! I don't know if, Kate, you've been to Oxford. I have not, unfortunately. It was one of my biggest regrets it's fine it's fine oh, it's fine we'll make it happen one day one day we'll be able to travel again <laughs> we'll do a special in-person episode um but yes so firstly when kind of when they're walking past the uh radcliffe camera and you can see like all of these tourists that is oxford in like particularly in the summer that is what it can be like, is just you're fighting through crowds of people on tours the whole time. And, like, great thing for tourism in Oxford, but it's it's a lot. Um, so I really enjoyed that. Secondly, the turning that Lyra takes. So she starts running, and she turns down a small alley. That alley is actually one of my favourite alleys in Oxford. And it does not lead where she where they say it does and also looking at the canonical maps of of lyra's oxford it doesn't lead to where jordan would be so <laughs> specifically that actually leads to one of my favorite pubs in oxford ah. called the turf tavern which is why i know it so well <laughs> um so when she's actually running to where jordan is in quotes it actually takes her away from the canonical location of jordan and towards what in that world is wadham and new college but in lyra's world would be gabriel and wickham but i guess it was their favorite alley too and that's why they chose it oh absolutely i i completely see like i love it and it gives a really good feeling of how twisty-turny Oxford is. And they actually go to one of my other favourite alleys, which is Queen's Lane, because my sister was at Queen's College. So we were kind of went down there all the time. And it's just little things like that where you go, oh, ah, I know where that is. <laughs> I love that Francis was watching the episode and he's like, she's about to go to the pub. 
And he's yeah. like, what the fuck? That's not the pub. And then she didn't. Yeah. Yeah. See, she came out a completely different place. I am 100% on Francis' side here as somebody who lives in Vancouver where every fucking thing in the world is filmed. Yeah, yeah. I've literally seen people like make a 90 degree turn on screen and then start walking. But I know that they're walking as if they had made a 180 degree turn. And I'm like, I can't watch yes. this anymore. What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Unacceptable. Just, oh my God. Um the other let's think other ones um oh yes where she says st peter's college is that is actually the uh, Magdalen college library um which is also named Magdalen in uh lyra's oxford so where she ended up would have been Magdalen college either way and yet she's it's nominally st peter's college what was the other one? Oh yeah the place where uh, Will puts a plaster on Lyra's knee. I was wondering whether that was a matte painted background, whether that was photoshopped in later. But no, it actually is a place. I looked it up on Google Maps and worked out the exact angle that they were filming from. And yeah, um, it's at the corner of Brazenose Lane and Radcliffe Square. So yeah, that was quite a little Oh yeah, the other one I wanted to talk about briefly was the Pitt Rivers Museum which firstly is one of the most photogenic places to film. It is so good. And yes, how how you see the museum in the show is exactly what Pit Rivers Museum is like, because it is Pit Rivers Museum. Like there's just, it's it, they haven't dressed anything up. They haven't made it look extra cool. It just looks like that. At the end of the Pit Rivers scene, when Lyra is kind of, I guess, hurrying back, she passes this very weird, creepy animated sculpture thing. And that is just as creepy in real life. It is <laughs> it is motion activated, if I remember correctly. And it's just super creepy. Oh, so wait. yeah. That, okay. That's not like a street performer or something like that? No, nope, that's in the museum. Oh, weird. Oh, oh I thought that was a street yeah. performer too. Wait, which, uh, sorry, which oh, maybe so there was a street performer right at the beginning? Okay. Oh, okay, 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 okay. That surprised me, though. Just, I don't think of Oxford as being a place with street performers. So inside the museum you're talking about? Okay. Yes. Yeah, this, this was, it's in a box. If you, again, if you rewatch it, um, it, they kind of all move forward and jingle. Yes, and they have their, like, okay. red glowing eyes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you're talking about. So, Okay. So that's just a thing that's there because like when that happened, I was yeah. like, is this like a creepy, is this like the specters are like bleeding through into Will's world? What is happening? And you're saying, no, that's just the museum. It's just creepy there. Yeah, that's literally just a thing in the museum, which is as creepy as it looked. It's It, shot, it literally makes me jump every time it goes off. That's funny. <laughs> so that is the end of my... Um, my notes on oxford as far as i'm aware oh yes and uh the, the part of the botanic gardens where they sit is lovely if it's the one i'm thinking about but i think it is and it's a lovely place to sit i liked this bit because uh sometimes i forget how many things around here are named after you know british things and we literally have a pit river oh really <laughs> yep oh interesting oh it's it's just it's not far from new westminster and um <laughs> yeah um so do you how do you feel about the grandparents do you have posh grandparents uh i've met people i've met kind of old couples who are like that definitely 
<laughs> I've also like my grandparents are absolutely lovely and are not like that at all. But it didn't stand out to me as something too odd <laughs> which sounds quite harsh they were so good because the minute that scene started i was like oh the grandfather's a jackass like just yeah. you could tell from the mm -hmm. way that he was sitting and it was yeah. so good and you could tell that they had money they it mm -hmm. was so well done and then when like the grandfather was like hello i'm a super asshole and walked <laughs> off then the grandmother came in and was like, hello, I'm a subtle asshole. It's like, oh, fuck you yeah. too. And they were both yep. terrible. And it they was suck. so good. <sighs> Very well written. And, and they acted. weren't in the book, were they? Why don't I know you? When your dad went missing, we were all very upset. Some thoughtless words were said. But we're very happy that you found us. How is Elaine? We know she had a hard time after your father disappeared. Is she okay now? Why did he leave us? I know Johnny found it very hard to be away from you. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I just need your help with this trust stuff. Oh, for heaven's sake. You see, what did I tell you? She sent him here for money. She didn't send me anywhere. Graham! Oh, I'm sorry. Just give him a moment. D.I. Walters. It's Graham Parry. You were right. He came to us. Keep him there. I'm coming now. I understand why you're angry. John's absence has been hard on all of us, but we can help you. You can even stay here if you like. Can Mum stay? It sounds like your mum needs some professional help. How do you know that? Mum's fine. Well, she's not fine, is she, Will? Neither are you. Your parents exchanged letters, and for some reason the police think that they're important. If you could just explain and help us find them, then all of this can be over. <coughs> I'm sorry. D don't worry at all. They do fill in the void created by making Boreal black. Because we talked how we were worried about... Because Lord Boreal in the book is like an old, stodgy, white dude who right. really represents... Like, you know, like the aristocracy, yeah, like old the money, evilness. colonialism, yeah. yeah, like all of yeah, that. Yeah, all that shit. And by, but by making him this young, attractive black man, uh, they make him a, a different character in the show. Yeah, and he and, can't he can't like fill that symbolic role. Yeah. But having these people in here for even just this quick scene is like especially with Will being played by uh, a mixed race, uh, you know, Amir Wilson, uh mm -hmm. is so great. And it's you can just tell that these white people are fucking assholes. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And they are. Yeah. And I mean, also just in this episode in general, Boreal is still just as creepy as always, and he's still just as menacing, and I love it. Oh, yeah, like he's somehow so in that scene, he manages to come off as like menacing to the viewer, but also believably nice to Lyra. So you can mm -hmm. see why she might um, not be like immediately suspicious of him. 
I, I think he, he threads that needle so well, I thought. You interested in skulls? Did you know that people still do that? Drill holes in their heads. They must be lunatics. There's a name for it. I forgot what it's called. Trepanning. Are you a student in Oxford? No, it says it there. <laughs> well, I wish I knew so much at your age. Charles. Lizzie. I'm a collector. I've donated various items to this place. Listen, um, if you ever want to know more about these artifacts... Thanks. Nice to meet you, Lizzie. I mean, any time a strange adult is talking to a child, it's creepy as shit, and they shouldn't do it, and they don't have any reason to be doing it. Adults don't want things from kids. Yeah. Except unless they're creepy i did feel like she plays it exactly correct of like i've completely got you handled because i understand everything about you and so i know how to get out of this situation like her overconfidence and not understanding what boreal is was like perfect in the scene i felt like yeah definitely lyra's overconfidence is her her big weakness so yeah and also like some people can just be really menacing and it's great yeah I like I like to imagine that the uh, casting call for Father Graves was just must have serious small dick energy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Dr. Lancelius, you are the son of a witch born out of wedlock. This witch, did she raise you? I spent my childhood in the lakes. Then, as is the tradition, when my demon settled, I left her. What sort of a mother would send her child away? Is this not all a perversion of all that is natural? She sent me to my father to spare me the pain of the demon ritual. A barbaric practice. No, the ritual is beautiful. There is a region in the furthest north where demons cannot go. To become a witch, a girl must cross it alone. It allows separation without breaking the soul. Witches have been hiding the power of demon separation for centuries. Rituals aren't a secret. The witches have no quarrel with you. Witches are the enemies of men. They use their soft, deceitful ways to seduce us. They steal men's seed, and then they abandon their offspring. Well, then you have misunderstood them. Oh, please, enlighten me. Witches see that the mysteries and beauty of this planet in ways that men cannot Blasphemy! Do you hear that? Blasphemy! Thank you, Father Graves. And so because we don't get any of this magisterium stuff in the book, all everything with like Lancelius and Thorold, like we don't get any of that in the book, right? Yeah, nothing. No, yeah. yeah. So I'm curious what they're gonna do with that, right? Is it basically are they just using this as a way to make the magisterium really menacing, kind of show generally how they operate? Or is the fact that they have 
the world and then Celius gonna come back and like be more plot relevant later. I don't know the answer, but that's just like something that I'm watching. The way that they're really truly showing that the Ministerium is the worst is that Father MacPhail has a concrete bed. And I mean, <laughs> is anyone nice going to sleep on a concrete bed? I mean, I think there is a mattress on top of the concrete, but... That's probably made of shame. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can understand why in the first season he was like, there's some kind of encampment in the science cabin, and I don't understand. <laughs> it looks like it might be made of fun, and I don't know what that is. <laughs> I love his cell. I think it's fabulous. I love the design of it. I love like how the walls are striated as if they lifted these gigantic, you know, granite bricks out of the ground and didn't do anything to them and just like dropped them yeah. into the it's fabulous. It's very very well done. Yeah. So while we're talking about the scene, um I had a thought about religion this week. Um okay. I was very proud I'm of myself. So sorry for you. <laughs> dangerous game no i just the the scene where mcphail is putting his hand in the candle after ordering the bombing of the witches Mm -hmm. um it like really demonstrated how the magisterium has a very transactional approach to sin and that basically it's like well you can murder some people as long as you like hurt yourself a little bit too um (laughs) right and I guess I was just curious, yeah. Alan, if you had anything to say about that or how how that compares to other real religions. I mean, I we've talked um, in other episodes, especially our book episodes, about how um, Philip Pullman was raised in Catholic school, and like a lot of this book is is like basically kind of criticizing certain aspects of the Catholic Church and how it operates, and I think. Catholicism in particular does have that kind of transactional or at least did maybe in the medieval period have that transactional approach to religion. Yeah, I think especially if you're looking at like the things that Martin Luther was upset about, it's exactly this kind of stuff where you can like pre-confessionals and stuff like that where it was like, you know, somebody goes to their bishop because they're like an important knight or something and they're like, hey, listen, I'm going to burn down this town, you know, for profit. And I'd really like to confess my sins of murder in case I die. You know, the the murder that I'm going to do in (laughs) torturing all these people so that I'd go to heaven if I die while I'm doing this, you know. And the priest is like, just make sure and do a really good donation on your way out the door. And we got you, buddy. Uh, It's stuff like that, that Martin Luther was like, you know, this doesn't feel authentic to serving God. You know? <laughs> Money for sins. You have 100 pounds preemptive penance. Yeah, exactly. Sin credit. Right. What's your credit score with God? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> that doesn't like feel right. Like an Shakespearean here. Yeah. <laughs> you can commit four major atrocities and one genocide. <laughs> right. Free with our new current account. Yeah. It has to be done. It all had to be done. Yes, a necessary sin, but still a sin. We will atone for it. Put your hand out. 
And it's exactly the same kind of thing where you had like penitent people during the plagues who were like whipping themselves to try and end the plague. That kind of feels in line with like what uh, McPhail is doing here of like burning himself. The Catholic Church definitely has a history with this kind of thing. I mean, even in modern times of like covering up their scandals and not, you know, being open with the public and, uh, you know, saying like, we'll take care of it in house this is criminal behavior of like abusing children and things like that. Um, he's taking care of his guilty conscience in house, right. And keeping it secret for his own political benefit. And so mm-hmm. I think that's directly related, not just to the medieval Catholic church, but the modern Catholic church. Glad to know that I wasn't full of bullshit. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm looking forward to having more of these discussions about like what we think, Philip Pullman's intended allegory is as like a criticism of religion, especially once we get to uh, season three. Oh, also meant to bring this up before, but were you looking at the photos in Will's grandparents' house? Because I'm pretty sure that Will's dad is Moriarty from Sherlock. (laughs) Yeah, he 100% is. We knew this. Oh, did we? I guess I didn't know that. Okay. (laughs) Be a we know who the actor is. We saw him in season one. <laughs> Did we? Yes. Yep. Oh yeah. Oh my god. He, had, he was like he had videos and stuff on YouTube or something. Oh that we yeah, that's right. Okay. Later, I like, I love Watson that. will show up and he'll be like, <laughs> "Oh god, no!" He'll he'll be like, "I'm off to have an adventure with Gandalf," and we'll be like, I was just "This gonna is say, confusing. I don't want Bilbo in this. What, what is happening?" <laughs> I cannot remember his real name. Uh, Andrew Scott or something. Martin Freeman. Mar- yeah. Martin Freeman is what I was going for. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> Bilbo. <laughs> Moriarty. I super don't remember. I I probably had no idea to begin with. Andrew Scott. Great. I love the shot with the bombs and stuff as they roll. You know those uh, explosives down the World War One style bomber and. Uh, and just that whole, I love how there's no dialogue and they show just the emotion on the witch's faces. I think that's all really well done. I thought that was good, or that scene was good. I think the way that they talked about it with Lancelius and the introducing of that whole concept of how uh, witches can go far from their demon, unlike regular humans or whatever, I thought that was clunky. Mm. Really? Much much the same as how Will uh, Pan telling Will that he can't touch him. I like it's an important point to get across, mm-hmm. and I'm glad they worked it in. But I think they did it a little clunky. I liked it. Yeah, but we're allowed to disagree. But like everything around it, like um the whole Father McPhail having competition to be the cardinal and Mrs. Coulter being like, "You and I got to work together, and you got to do something that's going to appease everyone." And be, you know, shitty, but good. Mm-hmm. And he's like, great, let's let's blow up somebody else's culture. And then <laughs> almost immediately after that, he gets his cardinalship and Mrs. Coulter's like, great, I can blackmail you now. And so I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want. Yeah, that whole speech was so great. And there were a couple times in this episode where I feel like that was one of them. And also um, the scene where she's like, putting together the pieces to figure out that Lyra went through the portal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Her voice gets really like 
quiet and kind of quavery, but it doesn't make her seem like weak or timid at all. It's actually completely terrifying. Yeah. Um, yes. Seeing her shaken because she has such like a cool, calm, collected exterior most of the time. It's terrifying. Yeah. Mm, definitely. I have a question about this because here was my feeling watching the episode. Okay. We had this stuff starting with McPhail in the previous episode. And I feel like after the interview with Thorold, that everything has changed for her. Now that she knows where Lyra is, she's like, I'm out. I don't care about the magisterium. And this is my ticket out. That's what I feel like something changed in her plans but I don't know if I'm misreading it. I agree and disagree. Okay, perfect. Because I don't think her (laughs) ultimate plan changed. Her plan was always to get Lyra. She just realized what that entails. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, so her plan was always put McPhail in power so that I can manipulate him. Mm. And that's exactly what she's doing. Just before she thought Lyra was in their world, so she needed to be powerful in that world. But now that she realizes Lyra's left, she's like, okay, well, now I'm going to have to manipulate him this way. So, like, it's the same plan, just different actions. Mm, right. Yeah. The details have changed. Because I yeah. feel like it's almost a callback to what Lyra says to Malone when they're talking about her being a nun. And she's like, well, in my world, a woman could never leave. And it was like, that's what Mrs. Coulter does in this episode. Like, the she does the impossible. I I don't get that. Miss Coulter isn't a nun. She's not like in the system. She was never in the system. She was using the system. So I don't think she's left the system. She was never in it. Well, I mean, I feel like McPhail believes that he owns her. Yeah, but that doesn't, what McPhail believes isn't the truth. Exactly. That's what I love about it is like she played the system like perfectly to her advantage. I don't see the parallel there. Like, I don't think anything you're saying is wrong. If somebody had given her to a nunnery when she was five, I don't know, and she grew up and and was a nun, then... Well, it's because women aren't really allowed to have positions in the magisterium at all. Like, she was kind of magisterium adjacent, but she was never really a part of it. In this, in quite the same way. Yeah. It, it's also different because uh, Mary chose not to be a nun anymore. Yeah. I assume that there are people or women in the magisterium or involved with the magisterium who would love to choose not to be anymore, but can't. And if they want to <laughs> leave, they have to sneak or or run away, basically, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a difference between letting somebody leave and having somebody leave. Oh, Yeah. Well, I think that's Lyra's point, that, like, you would never be allowed to make that choice in the magisterium. like Right, so I think that quit. even makes the parallel less. And I guess the difference is that I'm thinking more is that Mary was a believer. Yeah, Mrs. Yeah, Coulter yeah. has never been a believer. Ever. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, I think Mrs. Coulter believes in her own power, and that's Sorry. about it. Yeah, so I should say Mary Malone had faith. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like religious faith. Mrs. Coulter never had that, I don't believe. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's it for now. Join us next time for episode three, Theft. If you want to avoid spoilers, it's time to say goodbye. Um, If you like our show, take some time to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. And thinking back to what I said last week, I think I came across as a bit of an asshole. 
So I'm just going to say Caitlin is C-A-I-T-L-I-N. I'm Francis, and you can follow me on Twitter at Francis Windrum. You can follow the show on Twitter at MOTPod. If you need more than 280 characters to speak your mind, send your emails to contact at hollowgroundmedia.com. some spoilers spoilers okay so before my actual favorite part what we finally get to me (laughs) no sorry what were you gonna say (laughs) i was just gonna say because we already talked about this in the main body of the podcast i did like the foreshadowing for how to separate a demon from a person yeah yeah it makes the story feel more coherent and i don't i don't think it gives too much away but i think that when it finally happens in series three or whatever it will feel just like it makes sense and like a a full complete story so that's why i liked it oh i i agree 100 percent. i just think the dialogue and the fact that lencelius was there at all was clunky like i love that it was there i think they could have done a slightly better job with it though okay but I yeah, yes agreed. no the the books do suffer from a complete and utter lack of foreshadowing, so I am one hundred percent about bringing <laughs> shit in, and introducing it into the world before we before it's like a huge big thing. Because it like feels way more organic when they're talking about like they take the seeds of men and make babies and don't raise them the way that women should. I'm like, yeah, you guys would say that. And then they're like, what about this ritual that we know nothing about? And here are all the specifics of it. And I was like, well, hang on. <laughs> okay. Wait a minute. I did. You're a witch. I did like the way that whole line of questioning pissed Mrs. Coulter off, though. Like, very yeah. subtly. You could just see it in her face that it was, like, needling her about the way that she gave up Lyra. Well, there's also like a hint from the first season that her demon can go further from her than a normal person's can. Oh, and yeah. I, I felt yes. like that was also like they're talking about this whole thing and she's like, oh, I don't like that you guys are asking this. I'd forgotten about that because that's not in the book. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my, my actual favorite part of the episode was, was that they foreshadowed the botanical gardens. I think it was really, I think that was one of the things like the foreshadowing put in that was not clunky at Mm. all. It was done really well. And they had this great shot from behind the bench with Will and Lyra on either side and Pan in Mm. it. And it really actually, um, it reminds me of one of the covers of the Amber Spyglass. But that cover has both of them plus uh, Kirjava on it. And I just suspect that they are going to emulate that scene in season three. I liked it a lot. And it really reminded me of how in season one, I think around episode two was when they brought in Mrs. Coulter talking about how she has a weird thing about heights and that great foreshadowing and how she always feels like she's going to fall or jump, which was some of the best foreshadowing ever. Wait, so what is... Sorry, I'm an idiot slash forget things. Um, Mm -hmm. What is that foreshadowing? 
Mrs. Coulter's ultimate doom. She spends eternity falling. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. She down, and down, Azrael down. and the, the Big Ben. Fire. <laughs> <laughs> when they showed the kids sitting on the bench, like my heart hurt. Like yeah. they're across. I was like, oh, oh my God. Yes. That was so, so good. good. Yeah. I love that they did that. Okay, so I had one other kind of like spoilery question. Do you you guys noticed when Mary Malone was um holding the piece of amber? I completely missed it. 100%. Oh, really? Yep. <laughs> I read your note and I was like, "Oh. Oh, that went whoosh over my head." Yeah, so oh, I Oh, am- okay. I'm only now getting this. <laughs> like okay. Yeah, so it, during the montage where she, like, puts it on the rock and then puts it on the chess piece, at some point she's, like, holding what is essentially an amber spyglass, um, just like a slice of of amber, you know, about maybe four inches across or something. What is that? Ten centimeters? Um, Twelve centimeters? Great. Two point... Any, whatever. Um, yeah, and I think there might be something trapped inside the amber but anyway i don't know if that was like just an easter egg or if it's more meaningful it's like not quite foreshadowing but i don't know maybe yeah, it is... people who've read the books will be like oh mary malone has amber that's cool yeah 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 yeah, yeah. or that like it and it does show her kind of like looking through it so i guess yeah it's showing that she is uh familiar with resins and how pretty they are there is a interesting extra tip of information here which was the uh philip pullman's initial concept for the title of the book was the lacquer spyglass mm. hmm. um and also the cover artist for the first u.s edition uh once jokingly suggested it should be called the sophisticated monkey wrench <laughs> <laughs> which i appreciate <laughs> Okay, so, um, Alan, you had asked how many episodes we get this season. We actually only get seven. Oh. It was what? Supp- oh. Yeah, it was supposed to be eight, and they had just started filming the last ep- or I don't think it was going to be the last in order, oh. but the last episode that they were filming I uh, in, I think, the end of March when everything shut down. Yeah. But oh. it turns out, but that episode was, they were going to dedicate a whole episode to Lord Asriel. Right. And what's going on with him. And so we just don't, we're not going to get that. I see. So they'll probably make that episode anyway, but it will just be a part of series three instead of series two. Yeah. Or, well, or something, you know, to, if there was any really important information. But I think this is interesting because, uh, like, I don't know, it would have been interesting to see Lord Asriel and I can't remember the actor's name because I never remember names. But, you know, the guy who plays him. Everybody likes him. Uh, McAvoy. Oh, God. Yes, yes. McAvoy. James, uh, Jimmy, old Jimmy McAvoy. <laughs> old Jimmy McAvoy. Jim Boy Mac- McAvoy. Yeah. I have a poster Anyways. of him shirtless up here. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's unfortunate, but we talked a lot about this in the book that I always liked that it wasn't his story, that we didn't get to see you know, the big army being built and... Wait, so you're saying coronavirus happened so that he wouldn't be in the show? <laughs> I'm saying it's interesting that that's how that turned out. <laughs> um, According to Wikipedia, though, episode seven is called... Oh, I'm not going to be able to say it. 
Isahitra, whatever that word that we can't oh. say. So not, I am <laughs> not really looking. Ishitar? Different no. word we can't no, say. Not well, in the original Chinese, it's. Uh... Oh, shut up. <laughs> uh... <laughs> but either way, I'm really looking forward, I hope, to hearing somebody say that in the show and getting some lessons on it. I'm really worried about the third season because you see the kids on like promotion tour for this, and I'm like, wow, they're grown ups. Like, oh, really? <laughs> what are we going to do? <laughs> that doesn't worry me because. Uh, you can costume, costume departments, makeup yeah. departments, they know what they're doing. Like, I recently watched... It worked um, with Arya in oops, sorry. Game of Thrones. Yeah, oh, and... Right, right. I recently watched uh, Queen's Gambit on Netflix, and the main actress in that, literally, they have her playing, like, a 14-year-old and a 28-year-old. And she looks 14, and then she looks 28. So, okay. I have no it's doubt. quite impressive. Yeah. Um, can I ever so quickly... Uh, this is kind of a question directed at Caitlin. Can I talk about Father Gomez, or is that because oh. we haven't covered that in the books either yet? Uh, yeah, no. This is the spoiler section. Talk about whatever you want, Francis. Okay, okay, okay. I haven't done so many of these. But actually, um, you're right. I did want to talk about this. It some more good yeah, foreshadowing. So it's the preemptive penance idea, which they're bringing in from uh, with Father McPhail, is something that comes up much much later with father gomez who has been preparing his whole life and doing penance every day so he can go out and kill without sin (laughs) and yeah it's but it's it's actually described as this like new technology or new like religious technology that they have developed in their own way so they they have a new theological technique for absolving yourself of sin prior to an action and that they'd be keeping it in secret as their secret weapons so they can go out and do the murdering thing without feeling bad about it it's just Not, super interesting just a they don't feel bad about the murder but feel bad about denying this man's entrance to heaven right 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 yeah, it, yeah that's it what they would the feel bad about right so do you feel uh, like in saying that do you feel like this is the beginning of that technology in terms of like he's burning himself and this will give him the idea to like we need to set up a program where we do this. No because uh Father Gomez is introduced quite soon in the story and he's been doing it his entire life. Okay. So it's just well, so I mentioned that but he's also very young. It's he's introducing like the concept to us as the yeah. audience then. Yes. And a they, little bit earlier than they do usually. It might be different in the show cuz I think we've already met Father Gomez, haven't we? Have we? Didn't we in we season one? Wasn't he one of the dudes who was at one point in Mrs. Coulter's house? Oh, like there was the, the dung beetle guy. Uh, yeah, I thought he was dung beetle guy. I uh, I don't remember. Um, something we can look up for next time, I suppose. He's not listed on the um on the Hisstop Materials wiki as having an actor. Yeah, no, okay. I don't see him so in on yeah. IMDb either. Yeah, so that's interesting because I I remember that scene so well in the book in the third book, when I think it's Father McPhail brings up that maybe an assassin and like Gomez can barely contain his excitement, like 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 a yeah, kid yeah. like in elementary school who knows the answer. He's just like me 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 <laughs> me 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 assassin. Yes, pick me pick me. Yeah, Father McPhail is literally like, yes, you're who I have in mind. We'll come back to that one moment. <laughs> yes. so good we're done well we have well, to say our sign off line we have to say <laughs> oh 
I forgot that we didn't already do the sign-off line. I feel like that's sad, because then the people who aren't spoiled don't get to hear our witty witticism. Well, they'll live. Um, okay. <laughs> we can slice it in. <laughs> no! Anyways, if you, don't, if you don't read the books, you don't get our wit. That's just how it fucking is, okay? <laughs> you don't deserve my wit. Exactly. <laughs> Anyways, so that's that for this week. See you all next time. And remember to look both ways after crossing through an interdimensional portal. Welcome to... Ah, I was doing my So You Want to Read Tolkien voice. Sorry. Let me start again. Wait, you have multiple podcast voices? Can we hear the difference? Well, So You Want to Read Tolkien, I start up high and kind of come down. Measures of Truth, I kind of do it even. Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. This episode was written by Francesca Gardner? Garnier? I would say Francesca. Francesca Garnier. This episode, what do you that, think? Gardner? That literally says Gardner. Gar- yeah, that's fine. <laughs> this episode was written by Fran. How, how do you guys say it? Say it again. Francesca. Francesca. Fran- Francesca you see, it, leave the all of this in. This is good. Francesca the Gardener. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I don't know English names. This is exotic to me. <clears throat> that's definitely not English. <laughs> Maybe they should have replaced it with a traditional Irish method of divination, like throwing bones. Right, like I I put a looking mirror in there and uh, a bowl of lucky charms. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Isn't that, oh, that's what I was taught as an American. That's not an Irish thing. Any problematics? (laughs) (laughs) Um, trying to see. Da, 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 da. So, like, when they when they oh, run off to go to Jordan, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, of course, they. Um. So, I guess the other question. I don't know if you have an answer to this. I don't know who wrote this because they didn't color code it. Um. But oh, it's just objective. It's not color coded. It's Ellen. Yeah, oh, okay. Just objective. <laughs> Everybody wondered this. Uh, the truth. <laughs> No, not at all. Mm-mm. They, okay, we discussed this a little in chat, and I was like, save it. Um, <laughs> but they. Imagine being cast as a right dickhead. Yeah, I know, right? You're like. <laughs> <laughs> What's the casting like, call? Like whoever. <laughs> like, white <laughs> assholes, please. But I mean, like, it's like Alan Rickman, you know? That guy was always just cast as the dickhead, except yeah. for, like, once that you're, I can remember. You're right. He just, But everyone always said he was the nicest guy ever, so. Mm. I wish some of them would have something yeah. kind of cute and fluffy, just to, just to show that they, just to mix <laughs> it up, you know? Like, come on. Yeah. I mean, your, your guards literally look like Nazis. <laughs> They used Nazi weaponry, literally Nazi weaponry, and then you give everybody, like, these evil 
fucking demons. And you're like, come on, guys. Like, at least let one of them have, like, a hedgehog or something. Yeah. Hey. Yeah, are you trying to hedgehog. say something about Caitlin? Not a hedgehog, but something like that, okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to give an example of a cute one. Mm. A good one. Mm-hmm. I'm watching okay. you. Oh, man. But you saw that uh, the alignment chart of uh, Eucharist that I sent you, right? Where it's like... What are you vaguely? talking about? Uh, I'll find it. It's like, does your does it, your Eucharist have to be like wine and wafers, or can it be like any carb with any fruit juice, oh, yeah, yeah. or like <laughs> yes, uh, like could you do passion fruit and chips? Yeah, <laughs> like uh, sp- sparkling. Uh, yeah. Oh my god. Sparkling. That seems wrong. That's too far. Prosecco. <laughs> You're the... <Yeah. laughs> Prosecco is not carbonated. Is not carbonated. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so like, does can you do communion with Mountain Dew and deep dish pizza? No. Yes. I, could you do it with uh, hobnobs and a cup of Earl Grey? <laughs> yes. That's my only religion. <laughs> Also, this brings up an important question. Is religion prescriptive or descriptive? Yeah. <laughs> yes is the only answer. Stop eating ice cream. <laughs> you can't have the Eucharist with ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> well, because is it the blood or is it the body? You can't tell. It's all mixed up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Can you have a Eucharist float? <laughs> The answer is no. <laughs> the answer should be no, that's for sure. 